My name is Justin McLuhan. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, snip, snip, we're talking about an editor, D.D. <laughs> Allen. Justin, no, get those scissors away from me. <laughs> we've never done an editor on the Important Cinema Club, mostly because we've discussed how it's difficult to kind of pinpoint the authorial signature of an editor for us, like we're not saying that an editor does not shape a movie or even make it, you know, what it is. But for us watching a film going, ah, yes, we can see the editorial touch there is difficult. And speaking about this subject will continue to be difficult. Yeah, we're going to do our best, folks. Mm. But it is interesting, though, because most people on the crew are there to serve an author's vision. Most cinematographers, when they get to direct their first movie, typically they're not very good because they've always been at the service of somebody else's vision when Gordon Willis makes windows, you know. But, you know, when an editor becomes a director, like all the Poverty Row guys started as editors and then became directors. That's yeah. not necessarily the case. Dee Dee Allen never directed a film herself, even though listening to some interviews with her, she did have an interest in it. But I think what is fascinating about her career is that she basically like shaped new Hollywood working with like some of the biggest names of that period. I mean, she edited Bonnie and Clyde, like the new Hollywood kickoff movie, and then continued to work with Arthur Penn. She worked with George Roy Hill. She edited Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon, like her, her career, like Warren Beatty's Reds, which was a massive undertaking, like you can see her vision and her editing style kind of shape those things. In the same way that somebody like Vilmos Zygmunt or Laszlo Kovacs is associated with the visual style of the new Hollywood the work she did on Bonnie and Clyde is is associated with the editing style, the rhythm of New Hollywood. In particular, I mean, Bonnie and Clyde. So it, it's interesting to talk about an editor because, of course, so much of editing is invisible or mm. is meant to be invisible. <laughs> There's a lot of cuts. That's a good editor. That's not how it works, ladies and gentlemen. And she said that. Like, she yeah. has often said in her interviews that, you know... People think it's about cutting, but often it's about finding the performance. It's about like shaping the performance. It's about letting a performance play. She's been called an actor's editor. Yeah. And when she talks about editing and what guides her, she would say like, you edit with your gut and you edit to the performance that a slickness of editing doesn't really matter if like things matching or not, because if the viewer is within the performance and following it, the look that changes the kind of temperature of an actor is more important than match cut. Because of that, a lot of people discuss the way that kind of her editing is very avant-garde-ish in the sense that like it will not follow a chronology that you expect just because she wants to get that performance. Like, you know, on Bonnie and Clyde, Jack Warner would say stuff like, you cannot start a scene with a close-up. That's not how you start a scene. You start with a wide, then you cut to a close. And she'd be like, well, why? Like that doesn't emotionally convey what the scene is supposed to do. So let's just start with a close-up when we cut to, for example, example Faye Dunaway in her home and you see a bunch of beats that are kind of cut up jumping through time to show her frustration well you just got at like one of the essential things in her style one of the things that she's most associated with which is the beginning with a close-up Serpico opens with that shot of Al Pacino in the backseat of a police car and he's like bloodied and he's got a big beard and he's sweaty and it's dark and it's not about well, it is about exposition, but not in the conventional sense of you start with a wide, then you go to a two shot, then an over the shoulder shot, then a reverse over the shoulder shot. And that's that's the clean geography of all the editing that had been up, done up to that point. 
it's an opening shot that describes that that establishes tone Mm -hmm. and she was very conscious of that and was willing to push it that far even though she was trained by some classic hollywood editors specifically robert wise that was kind of not experimental in his own way but he did edit you know citizen kane he's the one who came in and cut off the ending of the magnificent ambersons ah that crime and he would evolve into kind of a stodgy director only because you know that's what you eventually do if you stick around Hollywood for long enough, you know, churning out pictures like The Sound of Music, the classic we all love, right, Will? So she came to Hollywood in the 1940s and she began in the sound effects department at Columbia. Yeah, well, she started as a messenger, being one of the first women messengers for Columbia. And of course, institutional sexism at the time, the people running the editorial departments would say, oh, a woman can't edit, even though in the silent era, at the very beginning of film, you know, it was women who did the editing because in the at the very dawn of film, editing was thought to not really be a skill. It was thought to be... You cut pieces together and that's yeah, it. Yeah. We shoot stuff, we shoot in camera and attach A to B and this is too boring for a man to do. But then, of course, as the silent era went on and editing became a more sophisticated art form, it was taken over more by men. But I should say that there were still like many women that worked in the editing room. For example, of course, most famously, Thelma Schoonmaker. You have Anne V. Coates. You have Dorothy Spencer. Verna Fields as well. You know, institutional sexism is that they're like, put the women in the creative position at the back, you know, doing the editing, not directing on set or anything like that. So she began her editing career in television commercials, which was, so this was after working at the sound department at Columbia. In the sound department, in her interviews, she said that she learned a lot about just rhythm and tempo. Sound was always a very important part, especially overlapping sound and using that. She worked very closely with the sound mixer to create a mood in the film that does not go through the like ABC form of editing that was expected from editors. She began her actual editing career, as I said, in television commercials where you learn, you learn a lot. You learn how to convey a story with just the base the barest amount of time and visual information you know exactly how many frames that you need to convey something in a shot in 30 seconds or less she began her editing career proper in exploitation films god what are some of the early ones because of eve and terror from the year 5000 which let's be honest i don't think either of us watch because i have a feeling that you know her kind of revolutionary editing style is not necessarily present in it the hustler is probably the first like major one well yeah she did Odds Against Tomorrow, a Robert Wise film, and she kind of impressed him on that picture. He was very like, wow, you're actually pushing it further than I would expect an editor to do so. But The Hustler is the one where she kind of found different ways to convey the storytelling that wasn't, you know, expected. And that really drew people's attention to her. In Bonnie and Clyde in 1967, which is kind of the paradigm shifting one, I mean, as she herself said in interviews, she didn't invent anything per se. A lot of the innovations that she brought in were first done in Russia, in Germany, in France. Bonnie and Clyde famously credited with bringing a lot of ideas, aesthetics, vibes from the French New Wave. Which when Dee Dee Allen was asked about those early French New Wave movies, she went, eh, they got lucky. (laughs) (laughs) The way that they got created. Well, anyway, Bonnie and Clyde, I mean, okay, the thing that we notice most about editing is when there are edits. Probably the most famous and consequential scene she ever did was the death scene in Bonnie and Clyde, right? Which I did take another look at this week. Just the death scene. I didn't watch the whole movie. It's good, though, by the way. As you do, once a month, you're like, let's get that Bonnie and Clyde death scene up there. Yeah, let's get to see those hippies die. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) The death scene. So just the way that it's edited, I I never really done a close read on it, honestly. And you see 
Beatty, you see her, Faye Dunaway, and then Beatty catches sight of these birds. Mm -hmm. And so Beatty stopped to like help a passing motorist with his car. And it's a setup, of course. Beatty catches sight of the birds and the camera cuts over these birds for just just enough seconds to disorient you. You as an audience member are like, oh, look, birds. Why are we seeing the birds? Meanwhile, there's another car that's coming and you hear the sound of that car on the soundtrack. So you see the birds, cuts to Faye Dunaway. Cuts back to the birds, cuts back and forth between the guy who owns the truck and this other truck coming by. And I think just in the in the all of two seconds that that goes what I've just said goes by, you're so thrown around. You're like, oh, birds. Oh, the tr but what about the truck? Oh, birds. It's like in real life when you're distracted, mm -hmm. you know, and you get a little discombobulated. And then you realize, you know, when Beatty realizes something is happening, you see Beatty. Then you see Dunaway realize. Then you see a bush, just a bush off of the side of the road. It's like, why are we looking at the bush now? And then it cuts rapidly back and forth between Beatty and Dunaway, all while the sound of that car is going. And you're just thoroughly thrown around in five seconds, basically. You've lost your bearing, and therefore it's easy to imagine Bonnie and Clyde to lose their bearings. But also that it's building up, like, you feel a rising tension that something is happening. Why are these cuts playing out in this way? Because even as it's going along, even as rapidly as the cuts are at the beginning of this sequence, they get faster as it goes along. Mm -hmm. So there's this really escalating tension throughout. Which, you know, if you haven't seen Bonnie and Clyde, spoiler uh, uh -oh. alert, <laughs> yeah, that they are then riddled with bullets in slow motion. And by the way, it keeps cutting back and forth between them being shot. And then it takes a little while for a wider shot of them mm -hmm. being shot where you get a sense of the whole geography of the scene. But again, it is a very violent scene. But the editing is as violent as what we see. Like, it, you know, it's the classic thing, the classic like Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing of you think it's more violent than you actually see. Mm. It's the constant cutting back and forth. Which creates a violence that's even more powerful than the squids going off when right. they're being uh, killed. Right. And like if it was just a long shot of them being shot, the same number of bullets, you know, the same amount of fake blood. It wouldn't have the impact. Now, what's difficult about discussing the work of an editor on this scene beyond like, look at these cuts, is the intent of a director or even a cinematographer on the scene. Like clearly he shot it in slow motion. That was his intent for the scene. Dee Dee Allen has spoken about that. Arthur Penn, very artistic director. He would shoot a lot of coverage. And what that means is he's giving the editor multiple options in way to cut it. Like, you know, when I shoot something and I'm going to edit it, I only shoot it in one way to edit. Like you, it's called shooting for the edit. That's and, what John Ford used to do. Yeah, you know? where like, because he wouldn't edit his pictures, that the editor like would have no choice. I believe John Ford famously would like put a hand up in front of the lens to be like, you, you can't use any more than this. And that was the old trick. Like when editors were not, when directors were not allowed in the editing booth, mm -hmm. they'd say, okay, well, I'm I'm going to make sure that people don't tamper with this movie. I'm only going to give them as much as they, as but this. That's not how Arthur Penn would make the, the movie. And also working with Warren Beatty, who if you ever read any you know of his productions would just shoot everything over and over and over again so she is there shaping this like i'm curious to know what it would have been like without her hand how would this climax have played out if i would take a guess not as powerfully probably not no and, and it's one of the most important scenes in film history yeah so there it you completely go. set off like new hollywood and like oh this is what like these movies are going to be violent and in your face and you know creating a sense of mood in ways that are not the usual grammar you expect from cinema and like it's establishing both yeah the grammar is going to be different as well as the content mm. like this is a movie where the hero is 
die at the end. This is, you know. Yeah, even though that, you know, David Boardwell wrote a whole book about like, no, 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 they were doing this new Hollywood stuff earlier in the 40s. Well, I'm sure they, they were, but. When you were saying those cuts, I was imagining like that David Boardwell page of like, you know, the image, the banner, and then describing what happens in the shot. Yeah, you know, back in film 101, mm. we all had to watch, you know, a D.W. Griffith short and write about what was happening shot by shot by shot to learn how to do it. And you know, there is something in that method. I always kind of, my eyes glaze over when I have to look at those images and I'm like, I'm losing the whole flow. Just show me a video of it. <laughs> and I'm like, it's akin to like the technology now is like those movie books that just has photos from it and text. It's like, throw those all in the trash. Oh, like the old Richard Annabile, like Frankenstein yes, coffee exactly. table book where it's like images of every scene from Frankenstein. It's like this only existed because people did not have the technology to watch these as at home inexpensively. So what do we associate with Dee Dee Allen? Some of them we've hit on, the overlapping sound. A common trick that she uses is audio from the next scene playing over the preceding scene. So Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton will kiss and you hear like music from the next scene start to fade in. Kind of take it for granted now, but this was... Uh, Something that people didn't really do a lot before Dee Dee Allen. Because it makes no sense. The viewer's going to be lost. That's right. How can you do that? Often using a very hard cut to signify the passage of time rather than a dissolve. So now, if you read about her too, people say she uses a lot of jump cuts. She does, but sometimes in very subtle ways, like not like breathless, where you're taking completely out of the scene or the moment, because that's what John Goddard wants you to do. Right. That she's using it in more kind of subtle ways. Like even the opening of Bonnie and Clyde has a few little jump cuts in there. But you won't notice unless you're very specifically looking for it. Well, Jean-Luc Godard is so often trying to call attention to the artificiality of the medium, which is not what Dee Dee Allen is doing. No, she's not. Like, she is in, she is in the tradition of continuity and editing. She's in the tradition of editing should be invisible and it should, like, serve the story being told. But she's not chained to that kind of rule those rules she's just finding different ways to tell the story so the way that she uses hard cuts typically before her you'd have a dissolve to signify the passage of time but you look at a movie like warren Beatty's reds there will be scenes where you know there will be a party with a bunch of you know people dancing and then it'll be a hard cut to them in a different room somewhere else in the middle of a conversation and when she's talked about editing reds it sounds like a gigantic mess that like Warren Beatty shot all of this footage, including all of these interviews that he's like, can you, I don't know, integrated in some way in the movie and that she and her team that were supposedly like 40 plus people mm. had to really, you know, figure out a shape for the movie. And well, she, yeah, she's talked about as well that like the director is not over her shoulder telling her like, edit this, edit that. Cause she said, then the director should just edit the movie and have an assistant. Like, if you want me to put together this movie, you give me the footage you have. I will watch all the dailies and then I will construct the scenes from that based on what I see, not your instructions, because otherwise, why even have an editor? Okay, so a great example of this is The Breakfast Club. Yeah, I watched that movie this week. Uh, Rewatched How did it hold up for you? Great. And I was especially looking because she talked about how some of the actors like didn't have much to do in the first half of the movie, but she utilized them and even told them while they were shooting, like, be always present in these scenes because they could use a cut away to you to juxtapose an emotional thing that another character is saying. Well, John Hughes credited her with making him a better director, with making him much more conscious of what can be done in editing and, and what can be done with the visual style of a film. So so 
the early scene in that movie, you know, the one, the famous one where it's like all the kids are, you know, in the detention hall and Judd Nelson gets into the argument with the principal, you know, yeah, you just, Two bought, detentions. You just bought yourself a month of detention, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. It's complicated what she does in that scene because there's a central drama between Judd Nelson and the principal. And then there are all sorts of other like character dynamics at play. Well, you have Molly Ringwald is kind of telling Judd Nelson, stop doing that. But by doing that, she Judd Nelson is being egged on by her. And that needs to be communicated just through cuts and him like looking over at her, which is then encouraging him to fight back more against the principal without losing the central thread. Yes. The, the central emotional fulcrum of the, the Judd Nelson and the principal having the fight. But then also in that scene, there's Ali Sheedy as the sort of like weirdo character who doesn't talk for like the first 30 ish minutes of the movie. And she said, Didi Allen said in her interviews that she was very impressed with what Ali Sheedy was doing yeah. in her performance. She was doing all sorts of like subtle glances and she wanted to build the scene around that as well. Yeah, she told Ali Sheedy, keep doing what you're doing and like don't, you know, drop that or think oh, I'm in the background. I don't really need to act or the scene is not about me. And if I get a close up, I'll just do simple things like keep doing that because that allows, even though these kids are not central to whatever the drama that's going on, you are still part of that ensemble and all these things are interconnecting. Now, none of that was ever conscious to me when I saw the breakfast club. No, you and, wouldn't realize it. Right. And that's a tribute to what she does because you're not supposed to realize it. In fact, I think you only really notice editing when it's bad. Like, yes. you remember, sorry, I hate to dig up a corpse and bury it again, but a few months ago when we saw Clerks 3. Oh, yeah. Yes, I know exactly what scene you're talking about, too, because I leaned over to you and I was like, God damn it, pick another angle, Kevin Smith. Those scenes of the two clerks just standing there at the, at the counter, what, and there are two cameras. What's wild about it is that like one of the cameras is them in a two-shot. The other camera is them in a two-shot again, but just off to the side. 45 degrees away. That is such bad filmmaking and he cuts back and forth at random yeah. with no consideration of like why are you cutting now mm-hmm. it's it's awful it's yeah. so bad he edited his own movie so yep he did well you know what he was in a dark place at that point it seems yeah maybe we should lay off poor kevin, <laughs> kevin i don't Smith. know <laughs> So what other movies did you watch that Dee Dee Allen edited for this podcast? And if you look at her filmography, like if, if you want to know like what an editor does, just look and you're like, wow, there are so many classics on this list. Well, you know, it's funny because I watched these movies before I, sh- I should have done the other way around. I watched these movies before like studying her artistry. Mm-hmm. So you weren't aware of the things that she was doing. Well, the thing is I kind of get it now in retrospect. Mm. So Slapshot. Yes. The George Roy Hill film that if you're Canadian, you're legally obliged to watch. From 1977, the hockey comedy, which I had never really been able to get through and I did get through it this time. And congratulations. Look, it's fine. Yeah. I just, for me. I just don't like it. It's fine. It's <laughs> what, fine. what don't you like about it? This movie is a very accurate depiction of hockey culture. Yes, I would which agree. Which I hate. <laughs> I hate hockey culture. I'm sorry if I'm a bad Did Canadian. you live close to hockey culture? Because like my... Uh, I played hockey for like 10 years. You did? As I did a not kid. know yeah. that. Yeah. I did not play hockey, but my stepbrother loved hockey and he's the one who had Slapshot and the DTV sequel <laughs> Slapshot with, with 2. With Stephen Baldwin. And the Hanson brothers are back, which mm. I have to say like... They are not supposed to be positive role models in this movie. Man, I've I've been I've been hearing about the Hanson brothers for years and I watched this movie and it's, it's like, like that's what you, what really? you took from it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? They were big fans and you know 
Yeah, Slapshot, the original Joker, <laughs> where people took the wrong lesson now. Well, so, I mean, in retrospect, just thinking of Dee Dee Allen, I mean, yeah. it is a very complicated job what she has to do on this movie because... Well, it's also, yeah. It's so, Altman-esque, all the characters and yes, all the dialogue. Like, oh, Paul Newman is the main character of this movie, but there's so much going on that, like, the film never really underlines either. Like, he's lying and tricking people and making them believe lies and it doesn't always kind of say like oh this is not true remember this but the film and just the way that it's edited or the way that like paul newman will glance at another team member who that team member you can see that he knows paul newman is lying and that's done through editing mm -hmm. and yeah i mean like Dee, Dee Allen is doing something very complicated here, even though that like we don't really like the movie that much. Yeah, not really. But I, I do think to some extent this is a me problem mm -hmm. rather than the, a, a movie problem, although it is a you little. You played hockey for 10 years. Yeah. New... And, and guess what? I was bad at it. Oh, I played <laughs> soccer and I was terrible at it. Yeah. I hated playing soccer. I still to this day cannot skate. Yeah. It was never something that was demanded of me. So wait, are you an ace on the skates if you got back on the ice? I'm actually a pretty good skater. Really? It's the it's the game itself. I'm better at the solitary sports than the team sports. <laughs> not only can I not skate, we had a skating rink in my backyard because there was a river there that like my stepdad and stepbrother would clean off, would not go on, <laughs> could not skate, just bow-legged as I try to do it. I'll tell you, just a digression. When I was playing hockey as a kid, I got a hat trick once. Really? And That's three goals for people that don't know hockey. It's the proudest my dad ever was of me. I don't really? think he would brag about it to people for weeks after. <laughs> Doesn't matter what else I've achieved in my life. He would be, he'd yeah. be like, wow, the valedictorian and prom king dad is like, yeah. yeah. But remember that time you were, you got that hat trick playing hockey? All I know is he would brag about it to strangers and <laughs> none, of the other, none of the other accomplishments did, did he brag about. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly one of them has value and the other ones do not. I Makes guess sense. so. Anyway. You know, some movie that you could bring up like, oh, she, you know, did wacky editing on something like George Rory Hill's Slaughterhouse-Five, right? And you have to go, well, she did, but Slaughterhouse-Five already has that wacky structure to it. Well, what you always remember are in Night Moves, which yeah. we both watched and which I'd never seen before. And I think it's a great movie. Excellent movie. Yeah. Gene Hackman, you know, classic you know, classic downbeat 70s neo-noir, yeah, yeah. you know, one of those. But there's misery everywhere. One of those movies that Star Wars came along and rendered obsolete, mm. you know, that kind of movie. What are you talking about? Fletch, the one star. Fletch, Fletch, John yeah. Hamm is right there to watch. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> Your downbeat 2021 noir, I guess. But of course, what pops out in Night Moves is that scene you know, at sea, at the end. At the end, yes. Whereas there's a plane coming in, there's a machine gun, and the tension is like, Gene Hackman's on the boat, and he can't do anything because the plane is coming, and there's also someone in the water that the plane is going towards. And something sort of comparable to that Bonnie and Clyde scene is happening in the rhythm there, mm -hmm. you know? As well as the use of sound, you know, it... it the sound like drops out so much. Well, yeah, she was very famous for doing that as well of going like, this doesn't need any music or anything to create tension because the editing, the performance, that's enough to do so. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you know, you hear this all the time that like, it's more suspenseful when there's no music. Well, she was known for a lot of counterintuitive things like that. She would often, so in Dog Day Afternoon, which she also edited and is one of her most famous editing jobs, when Al Pacino like pulls out the gun at the beginning to rob the bank. He begins the bank ice. Like he fumbles with his gun a bit. There's a sort of like blooper left yeah. in with, him with his gun. Adds more humanity. Right. Like that's what makes it special. Exactly. And she doesn't do any like fancy editing in that. By the way, there's another scene, you know, famous, the Attica, Attica scene mm -hmm. in dog day afternoon where 
again, this is invisible. Think of all the different perspectives. Think of all the dramas where you've got Pacino. She has to give Al Pacino enough time to register. Like, this is one of Al Pacino's showboat moments. He has to be given a lot of room to breathe. But also, John Cazal is in the bank, has to keep cutting back to him, has to keep cutting back to the, to the cops. All of the people, like, in the audience outside watching... There are aerial shots of the helicopters. You know, there's a whole ecosystem in the service of Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. And there's it's just an unbelievably complicated job. When but you she think has to about make it. it look seamless as yeah. well. That yeah. the moment works, you don't think of the editing. Because if you do, then she's failed at her job. Right. All right. Let's talk about a movie we both watched. Let's go. So she edited Let It Ride. By the greatest director she worked with. Joe Pitka. Now, what else did Joe Pitka make? I mean, he directed some of the most famous commercials, music videos of all time. With one of the greatest stars of all time, Mr. Bugs Bunny. Yes. And he also ate the world's most expensive piece of food, a $35,000 white truffle. (laughs) It better have made him shit and come at the same time for that amount of money. I didn't know that. You didn't know that? That's what you do with your Space Jam money? (laughs) I mean... You eat the world's most expensive piece of food? That is an act of a man who is so rich... That he does not know what to do with it. I don't like that. He's like, I got nine yachts. (laughs) What am I supposed to do? It went to charity, whatever that means for those rich charities. But his first directorial effort, forgotten. Like when I posted about him recently, people are like, and he only directed one movie, Space Jam. And I'm like, no, 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 not true. Because he directed the Richard Dreyfus starring Let It Ride. We love our Richard Dreyfus vehicles, don't we? <laughs> From 1989. Richard Dreyfus vehicles for like 30 years were common as blades of grass, you know? <laughs> I mean, you also have What About Bob? The Bill Murray, Frank Oz movie? I'd be interested in, I mean, she didn't talk all that much about Krippendorf's tribe, you know? <laughs> That was kind of the last one, wasn't it? Yeah. So I was watching Let It Ride, and obviously, you know, Richard Dreyfuss can be good. But I was watching this movie thinking, wow, is he charmless in this? Fuck. So I don't know if she got this footage and went, what am I supposed to do with this? Because Richard Dreyfuss in this movie, like his performance. He's like Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. uh, I was going to say Jason Momoa in Fast X, where like (laughs) one scene he could be like very nervy and worried. And the next scene he's like, "Ah, let me go. Ah!" And it's like, there's no internal consistency. I mean, this whole movie, what is this movie? Like watching it, I was like, what, what, what is the hook? It's, is it a comedy? I mean, one, I think it's one thing that her editing doesn't quite fix is the tone of the movie. That's the issue, which gets, I mean, the most memorable bit of editing in this movie is that cartoony scene where he's like running through the hall and Mm -hmm. like jumps and he slides. Well, there's also like, I think the sound cuts out when he puts like one of his bets down. It's like, Mm -hmm. and you can feel her hand there, but like the film, let it ride is about uh, a wacky gambler. Yeah. Richard Dreyfuss, who just promised his wife, Terry Terry Gar, Gar, that he will not gamble anymore. Goes to the track because he heard his friend who records taxi conversations that there's a horse that's going to win and it's a sure bet. And he wins, but he can't stop gambling. And he keeps doing it. But he has an incredible lucky streak. Yes. That's it. That's the movie. There's nothing more here. Well, there's him and his fun friend, Looney. Yep. Uh, Actually, kind of a a galaxy of actors in this movie. Yeah. Alan Garfield, Robbie Coltrane as the ticket guy, Cynthia Nixon, of course. Mary Warnov showing up briefly Mm -hmm. as a bartender. That's right. The thing about this movie is that, like, was it 
meant to be a comedy or was it molded into a comedy afterwards? I think it was meant to basically be a light comedy. Okay. You know? Because it feels weird. Like, it feels like it should be a more miserable than it is. But then there's like sound effects to it. Yeah. And I mean, I would have I would have liked to have seen Dee Dee Allen smooth some of the transitions a bit. I mean, it looks great. Yes. Joe Pitka, he has that look. Yeah. That Joe Pitka look. Uh, the Joe Pitka touch. But like the movie itself, not good. And edited... Listen, I, I would There's a movie there. Listen, I would say she's only as good as the material. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, what do you do when you're given this Richard Dreyfus performance? Mm-hmm. You gotta you gotta do justice to that performance. And I think she does. <laughs> Just the wackiness, the screaming, the all over the placeness of it. Isn't it wild that this movie about gambling basically ends with, you know what? Gambling is good and you can win. <laughs> like that's how it ends. Yeah. I was like, what? What? Really? This movie brought to you by the Gambling Association of uh, the United States. Yeah, it's hard to tell exactly what they were going after. Well, I mean, this was late period in her career. She didn't retire. She took another like creative position at a studio in the 90s. Did come back for the Wonder Boys. That's right. Wonder Boys, the Michael Douglas film. She there was a, And she was nominated for an Oscar for that movie. Nine year gap after she did The Addams Family in 1991, Henry and June in 1990, and then Wonder Boys in 2000. Then a couple, just a couple more movies. John Q with Denzel Washington. Of course, the ignominious Robin Williams thriller The Final Cut <laughs> which I've never seen of you yeah a long time ago it was fine yeah. like it's about editing so maybe she's like I can do something here I mean obviously somebody who didn't need to work towards the end and maybe, no she yeah. didn't so whatever probably project came her way that she was interested she would just jump on as a favor probably to whoever was making it so I'm glad to have done a little bit more of a dive into her because Again, for you as a filmmaker, probably know more about editing than I do, Mm -hmm. but I should know more. (laughs) Well, now we've done an episode for it and maybe we'll do another editor, but it would have to be someone who has like a distinct style because otherwise it's too tough. Unless we have the script beside us and we're like looking at the movie and going, how did editing shape this? Well, one of the most famous examples is Ralph Rosenblum, who was the editor of all those early Woody Allen movies where... Well, he has a whole book about it, doesn't he? When the Shooting Stops, it's called, which is one of the most famous movie books ever, where, among other things, Annie Hall, the first cut, was 140 minutes. And he was like, why don't you focus on the love story? And there was like a murder mystery in it (laughs) as well. (laughs) Yeah, release release the Allen cut. (laughs) Well, he talks about like working on like a disastrous like William Friedkin production as well, like that comedy that he made. I don't remember what it's called. Anyway, if people haven't read that book, When the Shooting Stops, would recommend picking it up. So Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Kyle. And he asks... Hey there, Justin and Will. I was listening to you guys shit on the Flintstones. Was I? Oh, the animated series. Oh, not the live action. The movie. animated series. Is this controversial? No, I think we did it on an episode about Yogi, Yogi Bear. Bear. Okay, Check it out can, on Patreon. Let me just say, I've seen every episode of the Flintstones. <laughs> I watched it every day when I was a kid. It was on nonstop. If I say the Flintstones is a bad show, which it is, it comes from a place of love. And so deep familiarity, (laughs) this letter continues. It brought up a memory that I wanted to share. At some point in the early 2000s, I was sitting with my grandmother when she turned to me and said, you know, I think the Flintstone show was probably the smartest thing ever on TV. Well, it's like, imagine if a rock were a television. (laughs) Having pretty much the same take on the Flintstones as you, I asked, what do you mean, grandma? And she replied, how they were cavemen. Who comes up with that stuff? (laughs) Man, I, I mean, you, yeah. can't, you can't argue with that, right? 
Yeah, it's interesting when you think about it. I mean, I'm sure your grandmother was a lovely person. <laughs> As you can probably tell, her tastes were somewhat provincial, and I didn't have the heart to point out that it was just a carbon copy of The Honeymooners, <laughs> a show I know that she watched. I think that she was probably just trying to relate to her weirdo cartoonist oh, grandson. Yeah. She was good like that, always giving me mad magazines, even into my 20s. Had she lived to see me published in it? Wow, someone was published in Mad Magazine. Wow. I'm sure she would have taken all the credit. Anyway, thanks for the pod. I would like to make a request. Have you ever considered doing an episode on the French animator Picha? Picha? Specifically, Tarzoon, La Honte de la Jungle, Shame of the Jungle from 1975, from 1980, and Le Big Bang from 1987. I think they would fit somewhere nicely between Yogi Bear and Tentacle Porn. I'm a Patreon <laughs> a subscriber, and therefore you owe me, Kyle. Have you ever heard about these? I've seen them, like, no. posters for them. I, I have no idea. Very porny-ish kind of animated movies from France in the mid I mean, sounds great. Sounds Let's great. Do it. Yeah, Fuck. We, and it's one filmmaker who made all of these pictures as well. Yes, please. So, yeah, we will definitely be checking that out. Thank Thank you very much for the letter and, and, you know, and your grandmother sounds like a wonderful person actually i'm sorry i'm sorry if i was at all disrespectful she sounds great i mean i love when someone close to you to us usually a family member will say like an opinion that you're like what and oh, you know what i'm not gonna argue with you because they might as well throwing my fist against a brick wall yeah like i i, I want you to enjoy it i never want to talk about movies at family gatherings no <laughs> I, I just i actually no that's not true i do i do but if but if somebody says something i don't agree with i always just agree <laughs> So the next letter is from Patrick, and he goes, Hello, hosts. I was recently finished reading Sammy Harkham's Blood of the Virgin, a graphic novel about a scrappy schlock filmmaker on the margins of 1970s Hollywood. Do you have any favorite fictional accounts of the movie-making process that aren't movies themselves? Also, an episode suggestion, lesser Philip K. Dick adaptation. All right, so we got Paycheck. We got Imposter. I just watched Paycheck for the first oh, time. Terrible. I'd never seen it. It was just a night where I was like, let's watch let's watch a John Woo movie. Something I haven't seen before. Ugh. Yeah, I I've saw seen, that theatrically. And, and guess what? I've seen all the good ones. Yeah. I have actually read Blood of the Virgin because it was part of Crickets, which my brother introduced me to, an indie comic graphic novel, even though I should point out it is written and drawn by Sammy Harkham. And the Harkham family were the people that owned Cine family. Oh. He was not the bad brother that was like named and all that big brouhaha that happened. Mm. But yeah, it's basically about somebody making a film that's like a Jess Franco-ish picture in 1970s Hollywood. Very good. Would And it just came out in a hardcover where they're all collected together. Now, fictional depictions of movie making that are not movie. That's tough. Can't really think of any off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I'm sorry. I mean, definitely the Ryan. Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> no, not Ryan O'Neill. Burn Hollywood Burn. <laughs> Well, that's a that's movie. my vote. <laughs> I was thinking of like TV shows. Well, what's the guy? Oh, oh Ryan you know, Murphy. Mar Ryan Murphy. Yeah. Did you ever watch those like what was feud TV shows that he did? Uh, yeah. No, I never watched those. Oh, you know what? Boogie Nights. That's oh, my favorite. Well, that's yeah. a movie though. He yeah. said not movies. Oh, books like lit literary depictions. Yeah, there's not any that come to mind that much. Yeah. Or even comics or TV shows. That's the the trick that you can get into. Like, what does a TV show make? The thing about making movies in any medium is it always shows you the same way that it's like. The scene plays out completely with edits until there's a mistake and they go, cut, cut, cut. All right, let's move on to the next thing. Yeah, okay, Animaniacs is my favorite <laughs> TV depiction with, uh, of filmmaking. Yeah, uh, When you have Jerry Lewis showing up as himself as the director. I'm a comedy genius. 
<laughs> yeah, Animaniacs. Us kids had it good back then. Good show. All I gotta watch that again. Like flying yeah. right above my head. Yeah. Well, you can because there was a new season that nobody watched that came to Paramount Plus. I don't know what streaming network it came to. Yeah. A little late, I think. Yeah. But if anybody has suggestions, write it. In, go to Patreon. Let us know in the podcast discussion page because I always love depictions like that, especially in like novel form because anything fictional about movie making, yes, yes, please. Yum, 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 yum. So as per usual, you can send us letters on Podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? We are talking about movies that we've seen recently. It's a chill hangout episode. Imagine you're the third person in the room. Yeah. We're all going to just hang out and talk about movies that we watched together and you can pause it and f- and respond respond and say what you've seen and pretend that we're hearing you and we mostly on this episode talked about new movies asteroid city mission impossible barbie oppenheimer as well as joe d'amato do you <laughs> guys like joe d'amato we talk about him yes because the new box set came out there's a documentary on it and that's what we discuss so check it out patreon.com slash the important cinema club plus years and years and years and years of bonus, bonus content. content please subscribe by, by the way another plug august 15th Fox Theater in Toronto. Yes. We have our screening series, Important Cinema Club Masterpiece Classics. Come see Glen or Glenda by Ed Wood at a movie theater with Justin and me introducing it, surrounded by your your fellow reprobates. What's that? Do you want the Three Stooges Blu-ray that's out of print at Gold Ninja Video? You can only buy it at the table. (laughs) I could not give these away before, but now you can buy them. There will be a free program with original writing. There may be a short film. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what an experience. Yeah. And it's the new AGFA remastered version of Glenn and Glenda as well. Yeah. So check it out next week. What are we doing, Will? We are talking about Richard Pryor. Great comedian. Great actor. Maybe the greatest comedian. And you look at his filmography and you're like, oh boy, man. There's some good ones in there, like Blue Collar. But it's an interesting filmography because... The toy. He's a classic example of somebody who is famously considered to have been wasted by Hollywood. Yes. And and some of his best movies are the stand-up films. In fact, he sort of created the genre of the stand-up film. Now, are we going to miss his easy money? (laughs) I, I, I cannot believe. Okay, this requires context. Yeah, I'm going to say it that we did an episode on Rodney Dangerfield. We have received multiple emails and reviews of people being like, "How could you talk Rodney Dangerfield and not watch Easy Money?" You know how we didn't talk about it? We watched three or four movies, and I also looked at Letterbox. Nobody liked the movie, so I was like, "Well, I'm not going to check that one out." I guess we watched Caddyshack. We watched Back to School. We watched Ladybugs. Sorry, can't watch every fucking thing. <laughs> we can't. There's only so much time. You try doing this show every week. You call yourself a cinephile? <laughs> we gave Rodney Dangerfield an episode. I and we're not just saying this. We've had multiple yes emails and angry comments saying, "Why haven't you talked about Easy Money?" <laughs> you know what? We ain't going to watch Easy Money. Why would I watch Easy Money? Yeah. <laughs> I spit on Easy Money. Uh, didn't we like Rodney Dangerfield? We like, did. As a person? And we, yeah, of course we like Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. Who doesn't? So Richard Pryor, it's possible, like, if whatever. Like, I look at his filmography and I'm like, we're going to be like, how did you not watch moving? Yeah, what about see no evil, hear no evil, if you don't watch that? <laughs> yeah. Where, where are the see no evil bros? So they can come after me? Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to watch Richard Pryor live in concert. Yep. We're going to watch Silver... No, no, what's the other one? Stir the, Crazy. Yeah, the one that people like the most i mean maybe they like silver streak the most but stir crazy was a huge hit Mm -hmm. it was like number two or three that year i'm looking here like what are his most popular films do we watch the toy which came past was it post or pre the troubles well it was post the troubles yeah that's what i thought i mean maybe we should because it's it's kind of when people say bad richard Pryor movies they think the toy you know what people are gonna say oh the the best one is the walter hill film that he made 
Brewster's Millions. Billions? Okay. I've never seen Brewster's Millions. Yeah. Or the, maybe I, we should watch that. It's Brewster's Millions. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, if you look at his filmography, that's one of the ones that are is right at the top. I remember liking it. And I think what's interesting about him, and we'll talk about it too, is that a lot of people felt that he kind of like, it was difficult for him to star in these movies because he kind of wrestled against the confines that were presented on him, that he wanted to do a lot of improv and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously stand up was his greatest medium because mm. he could do whatever he wanted. He could say whatever he wanted. The sort of characters that he would create, the way he would use his body in stand up. What about Jojo Dancer, the film he directed and stars in? I mean, it has, I am interested. It has a bad reputation, right? Yeah, it does. But I am interested. So next week, Richard Pryor. And until then, my name is Justin I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank some of our new patron subscribers who include Johannes Macedi, Peter McDonald, Matthias, Marcus Pitaluga, Ro Chambeau, Robert L. Newsom, Gabriel Bath, Nathan Treat, Patrick Carroll, This Town is Doomed, LLC, Jeremy Nyhus, John Handel, Zinnia Flowerbud, Oliver Evans, and Garlic Fred. Oh, also Crimson Gator, of course. Thank you very much for all becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Do, 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 do. Some notable deaths. Oh, no. Well, first of all, we're recording on the day that Paul Rubens died. That's very sad. Awful. You know, 70 years old, died of cancer. Too young. Too young. Had more to give us, I would say. We got one peewee film out of him near the end. It's nice. It's nice that he got to do that. Yep. It it's, is. It's, it's, he also did Pee Wee on Broadway towards the end. Oh, he did. He went back on Broadway with. In 2010, he did and was very successful. Pee Wee's Big Adventure. What can you say? One of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so good. And just that big top peewee. My, uh, it's got it's film. got a couple of good scenes. Yeah. But also, like ever so everyone's gonna talk about Pee Wee, but all the other roles, like him on 30 Rock. Oh my I god. I, I never saw him on 30 oh Rock. Oh my god, one of the greatest like TV guest appearances of, of all time. He was just a great character comedian. I feel he could like do so many things. He wasn't utilized as much as you hoped that he would. I wonder why that is. Was it his choice? Was he he too kind of pigeonholed by Pee Wee Herman? That's what people wanted from him. Well, he certainly was in a lot of bad movies in the 90s, like Dunstan Checks In. <laughs> I mean, Mystery Men, great movie, Mystery right? Mystery Men. I Blow? Mean, okay, he's great in he's Blow. He's great in Blow, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Pee Wee, I mean, what was amazing about that Netflix movie that he did a few years ago, which I wish was better, but mm. whatever, it's all right, is just how easily he came back into the role. He was, what, 65 when he made that? Like, he was getting, getting on in years, and... I, you know, just completely seamless, I thought. Big role in a Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the original one. You know, I heard a rumor going around on Twitter that when they did his makeup for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he said, I want to look as much like my mugshot as possible. Oh, really? Yeah, just, wow. just owning when it. When did he get arrested? Before Buffy the Vampire Slayer? It was 91. Oh, yeah, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer was 1992. Yeah. That, that haunted his 90s. Maybe that's why he didn't act. Which, by the way, was fucking bullshit. He was arrest. in a porno theater. He was in a porno theater, and by the way... Porno theaters were gay cruising grounds, okay? Mm -hmm. Like, this this is a police force that is, like, homophobically targeting people, okay? Yeah. Homophobic in the 90s? No way! Could you imagine? Ugh. Anyway, I don't even want to talk about that, because Paul Rubens was, like, an actual genius. And you look at Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the marriage of sensibilities between, you know, Paul Rubens and Tim Burton, you know, mm -hmm. like a glove. Yeah, I love it. I mean, they were made for each other. Now, another notable death. Folks may remember that we did an episode on this filmmaker, Sean Costello. Yes, the porno director, probably 
most famous for creating what's it called the water power no 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 what was the, the term? passions of carol no he was like two oh, day quickie oh, one the, day quickie. The one day wonder one day wonder there you go the one day wonder is exactly what it sounds like he was the specialist in hardcore porn movies shot in a day mm-hmm. 60 minutes long just ground out and these were not you know when jack horner the aforementioned jack horner was From ta- boogie nights was talking about that he wanted to make a film that that was pure and true and and that you'd sit in your seat i don't remember what he says yeah, exactly yeah. he was not talking about sean costello's movies no even though sean costello did care about the movies that he made well and he also leveled up as he went on like some of his later movies are like better than like if you pick up the passion of carol and you read those liner notes very moving of like what he tried to do as the resources presented to himself <laughs> the passions of carol i like yes. you know that's his christmas porno yep and one of the only christmas pornos because Turns out nobody wants Christmas pornos. <laughs> no. uh, water power. We don't talk about that. We would not recommend that. What did we do on the episode? I think we did water. Power. We did water. Power. Did you watch water power? I did. Didn't he do that kind of like forced entry, forced entry. That's now, what forced I'm entry. I really don't recommend. No, but if you want more information, you can check out that episode. He wrote very, yeah, that's what the word I was looking for. A bit for. of a crank. Yes. A man who felt that. He did not get the respect that he deserves later on in his career. Well, I mean, Sean Costello was a guy who like he was he worked for the mob, basically. Like he certainly I don't he did not die a wealthy man. I think he basically got got run out of town. That's when his directorial career ended. But I mean, another filmmaker who like I I admire Sean Costello, like he did a lot with very meager resources. I agree. He created some of some of his one day wonders, I think, are just like incredible New York movies. Some of the later movies like. Well, yeah, Beauty and Dracula Exotica and I'm just going to rattle off porns, you know? You but, know what? Like, some of them have do really interesting things I with the camera. I have a feeling, a feeling perhaps, that we will be getting special editions of his films more widely available because a little company called Vinegar Syndrome just opened a porn-only company. What is it called again? I forget what it's called, but it's in partnership with DistribPix. Yes, and DistribPix, like, they made the deluxe DVD versions of these pornos, commentaries. Oh, featurettes yeah. all they need to do is repackage those because they're kind of unavailable like isn't it the opening of misty beethoven is like 200 dollars if you want to copy it at this man district picks blu-ray of the opening of misty beethoven's a thing of beauty mm-hmm. it, was, so, it was incredible bring yeah. those back in i'm very curious to see how well they sell taken out of the vinegar syndrome ecosystem because mm-hmm. they're on their own website now like, yeah. away from all that stuff like will they sell Will they, you know, those men in trench coats who come to video stores still to buy those things, they're not going online to get these movies. Yeah. Or is it going to be people like us that are like, yes, please. What's that musical that I have? The Blonde. You Blonde know, Ambition. Blonde Ambition. Yeah. They got a two disc special edition yeah. released on Blu-ray. Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll keep you updated on that. And rest in peace, Paul Rubens and Sean Costello. Hopefully next to each other in, <laughs> yeah. in the graveyard. <laughs> are we the only people who did a podcast that mentioned both of those names? Probably. Well, that, that's because we're real cinephiles. Yeah. Important Cinema Club from Paul Rubens to Sean Costello. <laughs>